Welcome, come on in. There are handouts in the back as usual if you'd like to follow along. And up front here I have some completed versions of the prior week's handouts if you'd like copies of, of those. So we are in week number nine of our Attributes of God study. How time has flown. Uh, today we're going to move into cover two more glorious attributes of God, His mercy and His grace. So let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, we love you and we praise you for who you are, full of mercy, abounding in grace. Thank you that out of your goodness you chose to redeem your people through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Help us this morning to more clearly understand your character. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So if you recall from last week, we covered the attribute of God's goodness, uh, which we defined as his perfect and unwavering moral excellence and benevolence toward his creation. And out of his goodness flow a number of other attributes that we relate that he uh, that relate to his dealings with humanity, uh, including his patience, which we discussed last week, as well as his mercy and his grace. Uh, sometimes mercy and grace are used interchangeably uh, in a way to describe God's benevolence, uh, but they're while they're closely related, there are distinctions between the two that we will discover. A common description of the two goes like this. Grace is getting what we don't deserve, and mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And that's a good starting point. But there's a lot more to these attributes uh, that are worth looking into. And note that with both of these attributes of God that we're going to cover this morning, mercy and grace, I'm focusing mainly on the redemptive features of them, meaning that the benefits of these are for those who place their faith in Christ for His sacrificial work on the cross for their salvation. So if this describes you, then be thankful for all that He's done for you. Uh, All of these benefits that we cover are for you. But if it doesn't describe you, these benefits can only be yours if you repent and you believe in Christ for salvation. So his offer of free grace is for all who believe. So let's get started and look at God's mercy. I've defined it here as God's goodness towards those in misery and distress through his compassion and forgiveness. His goodness toward those in misery and distress through his compassion and forgiveness. God's mercy in his compassion is, um, it, it is his compassion and withholding of deserved punishment or judgment. It, it involves God's willingness to show compassion to those who are guilty in a state of sin. The Old Testament, some translations use other words for mercy, such as loving kindness or steadfast love. The literal meaning of the Hebrew word for mercy is bowels, which is considered the sympathetic region of a person. Do you ever think of showing someone mercy and compassion with your bowels? 
back then, that was a very meaningful thing. It's intended to convey a deep-seated or gripping emotion uh, at one's core. Now, the New Testament word for mercy is similar. It indicates heartfelt pity or toward those that are in great affliction. God's mercy also moves him to provide relief uh, for sinners in their distress. And of course, salvation is only possible because of his mercy. Titus 3.5, right? He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, he saved us. So let's look at some characteristics of God's mercy. Number one, God is compassionate. He's compassionate. God's mercy is rooted in his deep compassion for his creation. He's moved by the suffering and struggles of humanity, and his mercy flows out of his genuine care and concern for his people. Psalm 103 13 and 14, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. The the Hebrew word for compassion here means to feel another's pain so deeply that you're moved to do something about it. Turn over to Exodus chapter 2 with me. Exodus chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 23 through 25. And here we see an example of God's compassion. And this is where we begin to see the misery of the Israelites in their bondage in Egypt. Exodus 2, verses 23 through 25. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. Some translations say that God knew them. It indicates not just awareness or understanding, but also includes involvement. Turn over to chapter 3 and look at verse 7. This is where God is speaking to Moses from the burning bush. Verse 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. He knows their sufferings intimately. And this is not just sympathy. This is sympathy with action. Well, how did that happen? In the Israelites, in his compassion, he delivered them. He led them out of bondage in Egypt, right? He also brought them back from captivity in Assyria, in Babylon. So God is compassionate to those who repent. In the time of the judges, when the Israelites repented of their idolatry multiple times. He had compassion on them. Judges 10, 16. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. In his compassion, he delights to bless those who turn back to him. 
So he's compassionate. Number two, God is unconditionally loving. He's unconditionally loving. God's mercy is an expression of his unconditional love. We'll cover his attribute of love in more detail next week. But it's worth mentioning here as it relates to his mercy. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. So there's that love and mercy combined. So he's not only merciful, but he's rich in mercy. And he has a loving concern for sinners. His mercy is not motivated by any merit on, or worth on our part, but it's freely given to him. By, by him out of his own loving nature. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We brought nothing to deserve his mercy and, and his love. This is a loving act of mercy. When we see God's mercy, he's not expressing it out of any obligation, compulsion, or anything outside of himself but it is out of his own love. Number three, God is forgiving. He is forgiving. God's willing to forgive sinners who genuinely repent. In his mercy, God offers forgiveness and reconciliation to those who humble themselves, acknowledge their sin, repent of it, seek his forgiveness through faith in Christ. That's the gospel. Psalm 86.5, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. The word for forgive here means to lift up, or, but also to carry or bear the weight of something. In this context, it means God is lifting the guilt off of someone. Every one of us stands condemned on our own if not for the forgiveness of our merciful God through Christ. Ephesians 1, 7, In Him, Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So God's mercy is forgiving. Number four, God is long-suffering. He's long-suffering. We highlighted long-suffering last week as a part of His patience, and This is an example where there's overlap between some of these attributes, right? There's overlap between his mercy and his patience because his patience is a form of mercy in itself. God's mercy is demonstrated through his patient endurance of human rebellion and sin. Despite our shortcomings, our failures, God shows patience and extends opportunities for repentance. Allowing time to turn from our sinful ways and to embrace His mercy. Second Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. His mercy is long-suffering toward the lost, allowing time for repentance and faith in Christ for salvation. Charles Spurgeon says this about long-suffering. 
Long-suffering is that which keeps him from coming. He is bearing with men, not yet the thunderbolt, not yet the riven heavens and the reeling earth, not yet the great white throne and the day of judgment, for he's very pitiful and bears long with men. His mercy is also long-suffering with believers, because believers are sinners too. Of course, the penalty of wrath for sin has been put on Christ, and we should be sinning less as part of our sanctification, but we're still sinners. Nevertheless, he has a right to wipe us all out. Unbelievers and believers alike. Vodibachum said this, Do you know it was his mercy that woke you up this morning? Because his judgment should have killed you last night. He can say that much more eloquently than I can. But I got the words right. God is patient. He's long-suffering with us as we grow and to fulfill his purposes for us. Number five, God is restoring. He is restoring. God's mercy extends to restoring and healing broken lives. He's the God who can redeem and restore what's lost, bringing healing and wholeness to those who seek him. Now, on this side of heaven, complete restoration won't happen. We know that. But even in this life, God's mercy is restorative to those who are recipients of his divine mercy. A few ways of being restored here. Letter A, we are reconciled to God, most importantly. We are restored into our right relationship with the Father. We're reconciled with him through the work of Christ on our behalf. Romans 5, 10, and 11 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through the Lord Jesus, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Letter B, we're transformed toward holiness. We're transformed toward holiness. We are restored to living lives that are pleasing to the Lord. By His mercy, we can turn from sin and grow in holiness. His mercy is not just forgiving, it's also a catalyst for transformation for lives that reflect His character. Romans 12, 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Letter C, we are restored emotionally and with others. His mercy offers healing to broken relationships and strength and hope and comfort and trials. Psalm 147.3, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. 2 Corinthians 1.3 says that he is the God of all comfort. And Jesus exhorts us in Matthew 5.24 by his mercy to be reconciled with each other. So we are reconciled. Letter D. We are called for purpose. We are called for purpose. His mercy restores our sense of purpose and calling in life. He equips and empowers us to live out our lives 
to serve him and to serve others. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, you may be asking, how does God's mercy coexist with his justice? How can a perfectly just God extend mercy to sinners without compromising his righteousness? Well, God's justice and mercy are not contradictory. When God demonstrates his mercy by forgiving sinners, that penalty of those sins is still paid for. It's not paid for by the believer, though. It's paid for by Christ himself. No sin goes unpunished. When the believer places faith in Christ, that sin is still paid for, but it's paid for by Christ. So God's mercy by his choosing is granted to the believer. That choice is entirely his. He tells Moses in Exodus thirty-three nineteen, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And Paul quotes the same thing in Romans 9. R.C. Sproul put it this way, God does not always act with justice. Sometimes he acts with mercy. Mercy is not justice, but it is not injustice. Injustice violates righteousness. Mercy manifests kindness and grace and does, does no violence to righteousness. We may see non-justice in God, which is mercy, but we never see injustice with God. Put another way, the non-elect receive justice. The elect receive mercy. No one receives injustice. So some takeaways on the attribute of God's mercy. Number one, praise God for being merciful. Right? If you're a believer, remember the misery in which sin had plunged you. And how God in His infinite mercy redeems you through the atoning sacrifice of Christ. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our response to His mercy should be with thankfulness and praise. Now, if you're not a believer, cry out to Him today for His mercy. Trust in His sacrifice for the penalty of your sin. And you will receive His abundance and His eternal mercy. Number two, when you pray, remember to go in confidence to our God who is merciful. Not overconfident or proud, but humble and reverent but also with confidence that our God is who He says He is, and He does what He says He will do. Hebrews 4.16, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, whatever trouble or sorrow we have, God is compassionate and merciful to give what we need. Psalm 34, 17 and 18, the righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Thomas Watson said, go to prayer with confidence in God's mercy as a cold person goes to a fire saying, it will warm me, not burn me.
He is merciful. And we can go to Him in confidence. Number three, do not presume on the mercy of God. Just because God is merciful does not mean that we can continue in sin. Romans 6, 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin live in it? Our desire to live righteously should increase the more that we understand the amazing truth of His mercy. Thomas Watson said, God's mercy is a holy mercy where it pardons, it sanctifies. Number four, in response to the mercy you've received, show mercy to others. Jesus says clearly in Luke 6.36, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. He also says in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5.7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Paul says in Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. So as believers, we have received abundant mercy. And the Lord expects us to be merciful to others as well. So that takes us to our next attribute. God's grace. I had to squeeze the the uh, spacing on this page a little bit. We have a lot to cover. (laughs) I've defined God's grace here as God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment through His unmerited favor and generosity. His unmerited favor and generosity. So while mercy is God's withholding or removing negative consequences that humanity deserves, grace is His positive action of goodness and love toward humanity. God's grace is a free and undeserved gift bestowed by Him which cannot be earned or achieved through human effort. If you remember from last week when we talked about His attribute of goodness, we covered His common grace. Common grace, which is God extending His goodness to all people, believers and unbelievers alike. There's many things that we humans enjoy on a day-to-day basis that are a result of God's common grace, including the rain that's coming down right now, right? However, common grace does not save sinners. In this session, I, I want to focus on God's special or saving grace, which is His unmerited favor divine action by which God brings about the salvation of sinners. The very nature of God is to rescue those who are perishing, although He's under no obligation to do so. He delights to deliver souls that are destined for eternal wrath and also provide divine help for them to live for Him and to persevere in faith. This is the greatness of God's saving grace. So let's look at some of the characteristics as it relates to His grace. Number one, God is choosing. He's choosing. Another term for special or saving grace is called particular grace. Because it's particular to God's elect. He chooses who will receive His saving grace. Saving grace originates with God 
in eternity past. It's a part of His sovereign will. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 1 with me. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 4 through 6. This is the glorious declaration that the Lord gives Paul, which describes God choosing His elect. Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 6. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him, in love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. The decision of who will receive God's saving grace rests solely with God Himself. By the way, this passage is a great example where we see multiple attributes of God. These three verses, I found nine phrases that highlight God's attributes. He chose us. His sovereignty. Before the foundation of the world, His self-existence and His eternity. Holy and blameless. He's holy. In love. His love. Predestined us. Again, His sovereignty. According to the kind intention. There's His goodness. Of His will. There's His sovereignty again. To the praise of the glory. There's His glory of His grace which He freely bestowed. There's His grace. Three verses packed with an understanding of who God is. No one can make the slightest claim that they're owed this election. Otherwise, it would not be grace. Romans 11.5, Paul says that God's choosing is His gracious choice. But this truth is not an excuse to do nothing. God's made it clear that the message of the gospel is to be communicated, right? Because no one knows who is elect or not. And he's chosen the gospel message to be the means by which people come to faith. 1 Corinthians 1.21, Paul says, For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. God is choosing but he uses the means of the gospel message to bring salvation to his people. Number two, God is calling. He is calling those whom God chose in eternity past, he calls to himself within time, according to a sovereign plan. This call is effectual, meaning that it will always be effective, securing God's intended results and his sovereignty and his omnipotence will ensure that it happens. All who are predestined or chosen are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. Verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Right? And those who are called are not from a particular people group. Romans 9.24, even us who he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. All who are called by God will believe in Christ for salvation. 1 Corinthians 1-2 says they are described as saints by calling. In verse 9, 
says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So those whom he has chosen, he has also called. Number three, God is regenerating. He is regenerating. So those whom God effectually calls to himself, he sovereignly regenerates them, births them into his kingdom. They're made alive spiritually in Jesus Christ when they were previously spiritually dead. This regeneration requires the individual to have faith to believe, but spiritually dead people have no moral ability to believe. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. So being made alive, or as the King James Version says, quickened, is biblical language for regeneration. God's saving grace takes spiritually dead souls and gives them faith to believe. Philippians 1.29, Paul says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake to believe in him. First, 2 Peter 1, 1 says that believers have received a faith from God that they did not previously possess. R.C. Sproul put it this way, If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you didn't conjure it up. That faith did not come forth or emerge from your state of spiritual death for the first time maybe that you really heard the gospel and responded favorably to it and embraced it. Maybe you thought, well, I finally decided to believe in Jesus. No such thing. Saving faith is not the result of a human decision. It is the result of a divine gift. And that divine gift is the regenerating work of God's grace. Number four, God is justifying. As a result of his grace of regenerating his elect, he justifies them. This justification is the act by which God pardons all the sins of a person and also declares that person righteous in his sight. And this only by the righteousness of Christ imputed or attributed onto that person received by faith alone. And since this is an act of God's grace, it's done freely apart from any human work. Paul says in Romans 3.24 that believers are justified as a gift or freely by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. In verse 28, it says, man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. This justification is not subjective in the sense that it can ebb and flow. You can have it or lose it or worse be lost. But instead, it is forensic, meaning that it's a legal declaration made by the judge, God himself. And the ground of this legal declaration is the imputation of Christ's righteousness to our account. So, he not only pardons our sins, he declares us righteous before him. This is the great exchange of the gospel. Our sins 
imputed or attributed to Christ and Christ's righteousness imputed or attributed to us. John Gerstner describes it this way. It's a long quote, but I think it's really helpful. Justification has a positive and a negative element. It consists at once in the removal of guilt and the imputation or granting of righteousness. It rescues the sinner as a brand from the burning and at the same time gives him a title to heaven. If it failed to do either of these, it would fail to do anything. For man, as a sinner against God, must have that enormous guilt somehow removed. But at the same time, if he had the guilt removed, he would still be devoid of positive righteousness and with no title to heaven and would also be certain to fall again into sin and condemnation. If Christ only canceled out guilt, he would merely return the sinner to Adam's original state without Adam's original perfection of nature. There must be the double cure. That exchanges our double cure. And the result of this justification? Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans 8.1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Before being justified in Him, we were His enemy, subject to His wrath. Now we're at peace with Him and not under condemnation. All because of Christ. Hallelujah. Number five, God is rescuing. He is rescuing. The, the grace of God rescues those who are perishing in their sins. When we speak of believers being saved, it is this rescuing work of God. He saves sinners from eternal wrath. A popular view of the term of being saved is being saved from sin. But ultimately, what sinners are saved from, by God's grace, is the wrath of God because of that sin. Steve Lawson says, we are saved from God's wrath by God's grace. Only God can save from himself. R.C. Sproul wrote a book entitled, Saved from What? to address this confusion around the topic. In it, he, he describes that ultimately we are saved by God, from God, and for God, or to God. In 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Paul speaks of Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. And he says in Colossians 1.13, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So it's a twofold saving from the domain of darkness from eternal destruction, into the kingdom of Christ. Acts 15.11 says believers are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. No one deserves this salvation. God bestows it without cost or merit. This is truly amazing grace. Now, before I move on, I had found a couple extra copies of Sproul's book, Save from what? So, if anyone promises to read it, I will give it to you now if who wants it. I have two copies. Who wants it? Raise your hand. You have to promise to read it. Okay, we got one here. I got, I got one more. 
and then I have, I have a coupon for an electronic version. Anybody else? Oh, we got one back there. All right, Darla. Okay, and then I have a coupon for an electronic version of it. Okay, no one else. I will leave it up here. The first person around up here gets it, okay? It's just a, it's an electronic version, but I will get this to you, Darla. All right, so number six, God is redeeming. He is redeeming. By his saving grace, God is a redeemer of his people. Isaiah declares this numerous times, your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. The idea of the Hebrew word for redeemer here means uh, a near relative who has the opportunity to buy back a possession that another relative has lost. We see a beautiful example of this in the book of Ruth where Boaz was a kinsman redeemer of Ruth. It's a, it's a picture of Christ, our Redeemer, who's paid the price to purchase lost sinners from perishing through His sacrifice on the cross. In Isaiah forty four twenty two, the Lord says, I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. So Christ is our kinsman redeemer. Paul speaks of this redemption in Ephesians 1.7. In him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The Greek word for redemption here means the payment of a ransom to secure the deliverance of one held captive. In 1 Peter 1.18.19, Peter confirms this act of God redeeming us. He says, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Christ paid the price for all those who believe in him through his shed blood on the cross. He didn't pay this ransom to Satan as some may believe. Rather, his payment was to satisfy the divine justice required by God himself. So God is redeeming in his grace. Number seven, God is sanctifying. He is sanctifying. Closely related to God's justifying grace is his sanctifying grace, his work in us to grow in holiness. While justifying and sanctifying grace are not the same thing, they can never be separated. 1 Corinthians 1.30, By doing, you are in Jesus Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So the work of sanctification transforms believers into the image of Christ. Spiritual growth always follows regenerating work, even despite the ongoing struggle with sin. God provides believers grace to overcome sin's power, enabling us to re- resist temptation, immorality, and pursue holiness. This is supernatural divine empowerment to live the Christian life. cannot be achieved by mere human strength or willpower. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul says, And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will 
rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. His sanctifying grace allows us to do whatever he's called us to do and also to persevere in in our faith. J.I. Packer said, I need not torment myself with the feet that my faith may fail. As grace led me to faith in the first place, so grace will keep me believing to the end. Number eight, God is glorifying. He is glorifying. In every believer, God will complete his work of grace throughout eternity future. Believers will be glorified in heaven in the presence of God, free of sin, and will enjoy communion with him for eternity. Philippians 3, 20 and 21, Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Friends, we will be like him as much as a redeemed saint can be. Whenever God begins a work of saving grace in a person, he always finishes what he starts. Philippians 1.6, where I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Glorification can be seen as the culmination of sanctification. So, looking back at these characteristics of God's grace, the pattern we follow can be seen in Romans 8.30. These whom he predestined, chose, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. And all of this, Paul states in the past tense, which emphasizes its, its certainty. It's done. God has already settled this for all of his people from the beginning of time to glorification with him in eternity. So lastly, I want to quickly highlight a few additional aspects of God's grace here in point number nine. God's grace is, letter A, free and unearned. I think we've covered this to some degree already, but it's free and unearned. Grace is unmerited undeserved, cannot be earned or bought. It can only be received as a gift. Romans 3.24 says believers are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Steve Lawson says, saving grace is always freely bestowed, never earned. It is never a reward for the righteous, but a gift for the guilty. Grace and works cannot coexist. They're incompatible. Jonathan Edwards said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Paul says in Romans eleven six, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Of course, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Paul says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Letter B, God's grace is monergistic. It is monergistic, M-O-N-E-R-G-I-S-T-I-C. Not only is God's grace free and unearned, it's monergistic, meaning 
that it is God who alone brings about the salvation of his people. God alone begins the work and completes the work. It's not synergistic, meaning that there's a cooperation with humanity. It's monergistic. It is God alone. Romans 9.16, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Letter C, God's grace is sufficient. It's sufficient. Sufficient to save sinners, to sanctify them, bring them to glory. 2 Corinthians 9.8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. In verse 14, he speaks of the surpassing grace of God in you. There's no shortage of grace. John MacArthur says, There is sufficient grace for every issue of spiritual life. All grace in profuse, multicolored, multifaceted abundance and richness. Grace to understand the word. Grace to wisely apply it. Grace to overcome temptation. Grace to overcome sin. Grace to endure suffering. Grace to endure disappointment. Grace to endure pain. Grace to obey the Lord. Grace to serve Him effectively. Grace through all aspects of life. Letter D, God's grace is mediated. It is mediated. This may seem obvious, but it's important to note. God's grace is mediated through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the sole mediator between God and man. There is no other way. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. John 14.6 Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. As the God-man, Jesus represented God to man and also represented man to God, the, the great reconciler. Romans 5.15, the grace of God is by one man, Jesus Christ. All the treasures of grace are in Christ alone. And since God is pleased with Jesus, he's pleased with anyone who trusts him for salvation. So he is our mediator. And then letter E, God's grace is infinite and eternal. Infinite and eternal. A couple of God's attributes we didn't cover in detail, but referenced a few times earlier in our study are his infinity and eternality. He's infinite in that he has no limits. We typically think of this as it relates to his attributes of omniscience and omnipresence and omnipotence, but it also applies to his grace. There are no limits to the saving grace that he bestows on those who trust in Christ. And he's also eternal. He exists outside of time. And the grace he's chosen to grant to his people has been established in eternity past, and it will last forever. Romans eleven twenty nine. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Praise God. So some takeaways on God's attribute of grace. Number one, at times of trouble, remember that God's grace is sufficient for you. Whatever you face, His grace is sufficient. If you think you have too much sin, His grace is more. Romans 5.20, but where sin increases, grace 
abounded all the more. Charles Spurgeon encourages believers this way. Let believers, therefore, not count upon immunity from trouble, but let them reckon upon grace sufficient for it. Let them believe that God's choicest letters of love are sent to us in black-edged envelopes. We are frightened at the envelope, but inside, if we know how to break the seal, we find we shall find riches for our souls. Great trials are the clouds out of which God showers great mercies. Number two, as a believer... Remember that God's glorifying grace awaits you. God provides us promises in Scripture that give us hope. Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians four seventeen, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Those are our promises. So for believers, the gifts of God's mercy and grace are indeed amazing, are they not? May we never tire of these truths. Now, Lord willing, next week we will conclude our study. We're going to look at God's attributes of love and glory and also wrap up with a summary. So let's pray. Father, your mercy and grace are too wonderful for words. We marvel at your grand plan of salvation through Christ's atoning sacrifice, choosing to save sinners from misery and judgment, not only forgiving our sins, but giving us the righteousness of Christ to be able to stand righteous before you. For those who trusted in Christ for salvation, may we never grow weary of this truth. Enable us to continue to trust you. And for those who have not believed, I pray you would impress on their hearts their need of salvation, that you would, by your grace, grant them the faith to repent and believe. As we continue to worship you in this next hour, Lord, I pray you would bless the preaching of your word. May we be encouraged and exhorted, and that you be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.